Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Off the Record. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. We're taking a quick mid-season break from our story this week. We'll have the next chapter of Bowie's life for you on Monday, March 8th. But today we have something extra special in store. A conversation with Mr. Ken Scott, the man who co-produced a string of Bowie's most beloved albums, Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, and Pinups. For most people, that's enough bragging rights to last a lifetime. Yet that's just a small part of Ken's legendary career. His life is almost as if the movie Almost Famous happened in a recording studio. His first job was at Abbey Road Studios in London. His first day as an engineer, he was enlisted to work with a little band called The Beatles. No pressure. As we'll see, trial by fire is a recurring theme in Ken Scott's story. He worked alongside The Beatles producer George Martin, learning his craft as the band recorded songs for classics like Magical Mystery Tour and The White Album. The list of other names he's worked with as an engineer or producer reads like a roll call for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Elton John, Lou Reed, Jeff Beck, Harry Nilsson, Supertramp, Devo, Duran Duran, Proko Hiram, and of course, David. Bowie would characterize Scott as his own personal George Martin, helping him translate his abstract creative notions into sonic reality. They were the perfect collaborators and co-conspirators as David found his musical voice and evolved into a world-class songwriter. Together with guitarist Mick Ronson and his unforgettable orchestral scores, how could they lose? Ken's 2012 memoir, Abbey Road to Ziggy Stardust, was a crucial part of my research for this season of Off the Record. We first crossed paths in 2014 at a listening event for the Beatles' mono box set. I bombarded him with breathless questions about my favorite band, which he answered with grace and good humor. I'm extremely grateful that he agreed to a second round of my breathless questions, this time about David Bowie. Well... I guess just to start, you've had just an unbelievable career working with the Beatles, Elton John, David Bowie, Proko Haram, just to name a few. And it can really all be traced to nine days when you were 16 years old. Take me back there. How did this journey begin for you? 
I I realized what I wanted to, to do, what I had to do, when I was 12 and a half. I received a Grundig TK25 tape machine for Christmas, and it became my life. I fell in love with tape. I loved the smell of it. I loved the feel of it. I loved all that you could do with it. And I knew that somehow or another, I had to uh, work with tape. And uh, sort of checking around, I discovered that the, the best thing that I could do would be to become something called a recording engineer, which at that point, no one knew what a recording engineer was. No one knew what went on in a recording studio, unlike today. But uh, I knew what I had to do. So uh, I kept going. It looked to me, with what little information I could glean uh, at that point, it looked as if I'd have to go to university and get an electronics degree before I could go and get a try and get a job at the BBC, who seemed to be the, the ones that you had to go through. But I was 16. I was just fed up with school. And I thought, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to keep going and go to university and all that. So one Friday evening, I pulled out a phone, phone directory and wrote to as many places as I could find that might need someone called a recording engineer. So that was the Friday. I mailed it out on the Saturday. On the Tuesday, I received a letter from uh, one of the places I'd written to saying that they would like me to come in for an interview. I called them up, set up the interview for the next day, which was the Wednesday. Took my first ever trip across London. I lived in southeast London, and the place I was going to was in northwest London. So it really was straight across. I'd never done that before. I'd never been to a job interview before. Uh, it took place. And on the Friday, I received a letter from them asking me to phone them. And I phoned up and they said they wanted me to start the following Monday. So I left school that day. And uh, that it just so happened that that place that uh, wanted me to start on Monday, at the time it was known as the EMI Recording Studios. Of course, now it's, it's uh, the Abbey Road Recording Studios, probably the most famous recording studio in the world. As we'll see again and again in your story, fate has a tendency of just sort of throwing you in at the deep end. I mean, you get your, your first job at, at EMI Studios, Abbey Road Studios, and your first job as, I believe, an assistant engineer was with the Beatles at the time. I mean, so you're really starting right at the top. Oh, don't. It was terrifying. Yeah, the first, the first time I'm ever on my own looking after the tape machine, which is all that we, we as assistant engineers did back then. We just uh, looked after the tape machine, and uh, it was for side two of A Hard Day's Night, the non-film music side. And yeah, it was petrifying. I mean, how how did your experience working with Sir George Martin and the Beatles prepare you for, for working with David? Were there any lessons that you gleaned from, from those early sessions that you worked on, that, that you incorporated later on? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, although at the time I didn't realize it. It's only in hindsight I realized exactly what I learned from, from George Martin and from another producer I worked with who happened to produce Space Oddity, the, the single, uh, a gentleman by the name of Gus Dargen. Both of them were very much that talent is in the studio to do one thing, and that's to create. And you have to allow the freedom for talent to create always knowing that you can uh, maybe just go back. If, if you think it's going too far left field, you can say, you know what, guys, it was, it was or girls, whatever. You, you can, it was better like five minutes ago. Let's go back to there and continue from there. That, that kind of thing. And uh, 
it, it was funny because at, at one point I I did not realize I had got this from from George and, and Gus. And one day after the success of, of with David, David was doing an interview with the BBC. And they asked him about working with me. And he said that, oh, Ken's my George Martin. And I hit the roof. <laughs> I, I, was a, I, I felt offended that he had compared me to George Martin. Because what did George, I didn't see what George Martin really did. What, he, he didn't tell them anything what to do. And it, was, it was something like that. And it was eventually, it just, I, I realized that but that is how I work, the same as George. It's... I'm better. I know I'm better at saying no than I am coming up with specific ideas. And that, with working with the Beatles, that was very much so. It became George's place as well. It, it was uh, they had their own minds, and you you would go along with it. You'd allow them to 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 try everything, and then sort of cut back when it wasn't working. And so, much the same with with Gus. Everything as a producer, uh, I I learned. From, from George and Gus. As an engineer, the Beatles sessions were, were the greatest training I could possibly have because here I was working with a band and I, I have to say, you, you mentioned that my first job as uh, an assistant engineer was with the Beatles. Well, my first job as an engineer sitting behind the mixing console was also with the Beatles. I had never sat behind the console before. I'd never pushed up a fader before. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And I was there I was with the biggest band in the bloody world. Uh, yeah, I won't go any further as to the feelings that were going on within my stomach at that point. But... Uh, it finished up being the, the greatest training I could possibly have because here I was with a band that had no monetary problems. Thus, they had no no sort of timing problems. It, it, they could take as long as they wanted with everything. And it was a band that wanted everything to sound different every time. Uh, so you'd, you'd get a piano sound on one, th one track and then they'd want it sounding completely different on the next track, that, that kind of thing. And that, that gave you a complete an amazing amount of freedom to experiment. And they had no problems with that. That's what they wanted. And I, there was always that thing at the back of your mind that you could completely screw something up, use completely the wrong mics, the wrong EQ, put it in the wrong place, just all of that kind of thing. And there was as much chance of them coming up the stairs and saying, uh, that sounds like shit, I don't like it as there was them coming up the stairs listening to it and says, hmm, that sounds like shit, but I love it. We'll use it. <laughs> and just just the freedom that get, that gives you as someone trying to learn their gig, it, it's incredible. And no one will ever have the experience I had to learn what they're doing. Uh, it, was, it was just phenomenal. I mean, your first song that you, you engineered with them as a full engineer was I Am the Walrus, right? Which, I mean, is just all over the place in terms of all the different techniques and sounds flying in and having the, the, the third program from the, the, the radio come in with King Lear. I mean, it's just it, it, that's just such a prime example, I think, of all the different things you can try. Yeah, it, 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 I, I didn't do the basic track on that. Jeff Emmerich did before he, he quit. Uh, I did. I did the uh, orchestral overdub and mixed it, and and that that side of it. No, the the very first session I did with them was to uh, try and record. Uh, Your mother should know. They'd already gone to uh, another studio and 
recorded a version of the song there. But Paul wanted to try a different arrangement, so that's what we, we did that particular day, my first ever session. And luckily, the arrangement didn't work, so the fact that I didn't know what the hell I was doing didn't really matter that much on the first <laughs> session. But then, the next session was my first ever orchestral session, and that was I and the Walrus. And yeah, it, it, it was bad enough with biggest band in the world but when it's the biggest band in the world with a large orchestra in the studio ah yeah yeah no better way to learn <laughs> i guess not yeah be careful what you wish for you might get it it was one of those situations <laughs> <laughs> you had worked as an engineer on david's earlier albums like the man who sold the world and the space oddity album and they were produced by Tony Visconti, who, in addition to being the producer, was also sort of a musical director and David's bass player. When he was putting together the team for Hunky Dory, do you think he was drawn to you because of your background working with George Martin and being more of a, a facilitator of sonic ideas rather than getting in the weeds about the music? Do you think that attracted you to Bowie at the time? Very, very much so. Uh, it was when, when I worked with David on... Uh, the Space Odyssey album, or Man, uh, Man of Words, Man of Music, whatever you wanted to call it, uh, and then on Man Who Sold the World, I, I felt, although it was down as being uh, David Bowie's album, I didn't think that he had that much to do with it. He wrote the songs and he sang them, but everything else was was very much Tony. And I think that, there's a part of me that thinks that David had seen success with Space Oddity, which was with Gus and was very much David's ideas. And it was successful. Then he went away from his ideas. It became more of Tony's and it wasn't successful. So I, I, I think that David was, had put himself in the position. It's either put up or shut up kind of thing. It, it's if I have faith in my, in what, I'm capable of doing and, and have faith in my own ideas, I've got to do it myself. And it, it was that thing that he, he said to me, I was working with him doing a friend of his, which I think it may have finally came out as Arnold Corns. I'm not sure if that was one of the sessions or not. But during one of the breaks, I happened to mention to him that uh, I wanted to move more into production. I, I had it just as an engineer. And he said, well, I've just signed a new management deal. They want to put me into the studio to record an album so that they can shop a deal. Uh, I was going to produce it myself. I don't know if I'm capable of doing that. Will you co-produce with me? So an, an instantaneous, oh, yeah, of course. And uh, we, we went in there, neither of us having really done it before. And I think we were both very nervous. But as we, we did more and more, and it, as our ideas and sounds and everything were coming more and more together, it was giving us more and more confidence to go that much further. We were being proved right to ourselves. And I, I think it's one of those things. It's, it didn't sell, but that didn't matter. We had proved to ourselves what we could do. And then it moved, carried on into, into Ziggy, which was recorded a very short time after. I mean, it's really interesting to me to think that when you first started working with David uh, as an engineer for the, for the prior albums, your impressions of him, at least musically, weren't that great. That nice guy, some talent, but, you know, fair to say you, you didn't think that he was going to be David Bowie's superstar. When did that change for you? Uh, after, well, one of the, one of the, 
the reasons I was so quick to, to jump on, yeah, of course I'll co-produce with you. That would be great. Then I was thinking, well, this is an hour. My, my prior experiences had been uh, working with the biggest band in the world on first offs. And it was that, my God, every mistake I make might be heard by the, by hundreds and thousands of whatever. And so suddenly here I was being asked to co-produce an album. And I thought, well, great. Now I can make mistakes and no one's going to hear them because he's never going to be that big. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was a couple of weeks later that he came round to, to my house with, with Angie, his wife, and his publisher, Bob Grace. And we were going through demos for, for what songs we, we would do on Hunky Dory. And it, it probably just two songs in, suddenly uh, I, I realized that this guy was a hell of a lot more talented than I actually got from him on the first two albums that I worked with him on. And that this could be a huge album. He could be a superstar. And hell, here I go again. It's, it's something that's possibly hundreds of thousands of people we hear again. So, yeah, it, it, it changed hearing a couple of demos. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. 
Now, who was David influenced by at that stage when you first went into the studio to work on Hunky Dory? Was there a discussion of who he was listening to or what he wanted the songs to sound like? None whatsoever. It was totally fresh slate. It, it did, that, that, yeah, it, it, was, it was just we were going in to record the songs. And it, one of the great things with David was his ability to pick teams or put teams together that would give him what he was looking for at that given point uh, musically. The, the, the team of, of Woody Womansey, Trevor Boulder, Mick Ronson, and myself were and in, on Hunky Dory, Rick Wakeman, then later Mike Garson, they were perfect teams for what he was after at that point. Just, but he then, towards the end, after pinups, uh, I did another session with him, uh, su- supposedly for Diamond Dogs. It was never used for, uh, for Diamond Dogs in the end. But uh, it became obvious when we were finishing that off that he was already moving to more of an American sound because when we were mixing it, he kept on influencing. I, my recollection is that it was Barry White, but it was it was that Philadelphia Gamble Huff type of sound that uh, he he wanted to try and emulate, and he'd never do that with English musicians. And he realised that, so he formed a new team in the states to do the whole thing, White Duke, and uh, the, the more American style of things. And he was so great at finding those. Those teams and the way he would work is that he would play the song, teach you, just teach you the song and then leave you all to, to do what you do best. He felt totally confident in the team that he had put together to give him what he was looking for. And if they were left to their own devices. Something I was surprised to learn about him for somebody who seems like such a perfectionist that he, he wasn't a, a studio hound, really. Like a, he, he had very short patience from what I read for, for getting only a, a couple takes and having to get it right on those takes. Otherwise he would lose his patience for it, which is, is very fascinating to me. Well, you, you have to bear into mind. He was, as far as I'm concerned, the, the best studio performer I've ever worked with of the, the four albums I co-produced with him. 95% of the vocals were one take beginning to end. Uh, wow. And that, that's it. I would get this, the, the level, the sound at the beginning, having sing a little so I could get that. I'd then take the tape back to the beginning, hit record, and what he sang that one time through, 95% of the time, is what you hear still hear today. And there were, bear in mind, there was no uh, auto-tuning, there was no moving around, it was just a straightforward performance. Now, when when you know you're that good, when you know you can do that, I can understand why you might get a little touchy if uh, the musicians you're working with are going take <laughs> after take after take. So, uh, and he got bored in the studio. He, he he wasn't over keen on being in the studio all the time. He'd get bored very easily. And so, like Trevor and Woody, they were always on the edge of their seat. They 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 knew we've got to get this the next take. Otherwise, he's just going to say. Forget it, it's not working and move on to something else. So that, that to me was great because it added a certain amount of excitement to, to the way they were playing because uh, they knew they had to get it right. 
Do you feel that the best singers almost have to be part actor in a way to be able to put that emotion across? I mean, I think of the opening track, Five Years, where especially towards the end, and I know you, you've played during some of your speaking engagements, the, the, the stripped back just session of him singing and you hear him breaking down in tears. It's just incredible to hear. Yeah. I mean, do you feel yeah. that those the best singers have to have an element of the actor in them? I, I, I wouldn't say an actor uh, as such. David was definitely an actor uh, because I think you can uh, you have to have something like that if you're changing your personalities around mm. yeah. those different characters as much as he did. They were all part of him, but I think any great actor says that anything that any role they play, it's they're taking from from themselves a little. But I, I think there there are a lot of singers, uh, uh, great performers. That it's them, uh, just wholeheartedly. It's not just a part of them. It, it it's them giving. And in that respect, I don't think it's acting. We it was we just did what we did. We put it together slowly but surely. Well, not that slowly because considering it only took a couple of weeks to record the album, it was pretty damn quick compared to modern day standards. It's amazing. I mean, not only the speed that you did that album, but just there was just a few weeks between Hunky Dory and, and Ziggy, and and yet they still, to me, yeah. they sound for the most part dramatically different. It, it's so I- incredible, just the speed that they're evolving. Yeah. Well, but the interesting thing, I I I just see them as part one and part two mm. of of one album. Uh, yes, there. Obviously, uh, Ziggy is is more rock and roll than, than hunky dory. But if you take queen bitch, which was on hunky dory, that fits perfect. That would have fitted perfectly on, uh, Ziggy Stardust. And you take, uh, it ain't easy, which we recorded for hunky dory. Didn't use it for that. And then used it on, on Ziggy. So it's it, to me that they're all part of one thing. And they just came out as part one and part two. What do you think of the whole notion of Ziggy Stardust being a, a you know concept album with a storyline and so forth? Was that something that was discussed at all while you were working on it, or just something that fell together afterwards? No, <laughs> no that that's people reading in, reading things into it. It's if you consider that the main thing really that holds a concept album together for or that being a concept album was the track Starman, and that was thrown in later because uh, we we recorded Chuck Berry's Round, uh, round and Round. And that was in exactly the same place on the album where Starman finished up. And we handed the, the album in with Round and Round there. And RCA, the record company, said they didn't hear a single. So we went back in, recorded Starman, and put it in exactly the same place. And then suddenly everyone, once that happened, that was the, the, the basis, really, for it being a concept album. No, it, that was never discussed. And this is going to sound like an obvious statement, but it... it it blows my mind. In, in 71, 72, there was no Pro Tools, no plugins. You had to get the sound in the studio, which requires yep. a degree of forethought and advanced decision making on your part, which is just really unheard of today. I mean, it, it's fascinating to think of what the album would have been like if, if, it, if it had digital tools available. Uh, I don't think it would have been any better. <laughs> oh, I think it would be worse. But, uh, well, yes, yes, quite possibly. But no, it, it, I now, uh, I'm a senior lecturer at uh, a university up here in Leeds, Leeds Beckett University. And one of the things that I try and do with the students when I'm speaking with them is 
teach them what we used to do. And it, one of the main things was make decisions. No one these days wants to make a decision. They'll record 11 guitar solos and leave it for someone else later on down the line to make the decision which one it's going to be. We couldn't work that way. We, we were working on 16 track. We had to fit everything in on 16 tracks. And uh, so, yeah, you, you, had to, you had to make decisions as you were going. You couldn't leave it for later for other people to make decisions. And that, that, that led to albums being done much quicker. And quite honestly, I think a lot of them much better. You mentioned guitar solos, which leads me right into something I've been dying to ask. A question for, for all my guitarist gearhead friends out there and myself, I'm dying to know too. What was Rano's guitar setup? Mick Ronson's guitar is just one of the great guitar oh. sounds. Oh, it's very simple. <laughs> His Les Paul, he had a 100-watt Marshall, and he went through a crybaby wah-wah pedal. And the way we'd get his sounds is that he'd start off on with the wah-wah pedal on the top, and he'd slowly move it down, and we'd say, okay, stop there. And that would be the sound that we'd, we'd use. Dead easy. Easy, easy if you're if you're Mick Ronson. <laughs> you gotta, it helps if you're Mick Ronson, I guess. Is the I guess the point. Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, tell me more about his role in the sessions because he really seems like like the unsung hero in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. I don't think he got the credit that he deserved. David was obviously an exceeding talent, and I think of he he would have made it one way or another. But I don't think he would have made it quite as big quite so soon if he hadn't had Rono by the side of him. I think Rono was that important. We, we were all sort of, it, it, there's, a, there's a place that musicians get into where they're almost of one mind. They can be playing along and someone will make a mistake and everyone will go with the mistake. Just, it's just one, one mind, one brain controlling all of them. And it was very much like that, I think, in the studio. We hardly had to say anything to to each other. We knew what had to happen. And Rono especially, he was, it was really good. He was another one of those, like much like David with his vocals, he was very much, we could get it in one take. And he, he always knew what was required. And then, of course, on top of that, there was his incredible string arrangements, orchestral arrangements. He, he came into that, having never done it before. So much like, much like us, David and I, with the production side of it, there were no rules. So he was coming up with things that uh, I don't think more established arrangers would have come up with. And I, it's, I, to me, that a lot of them are brilliant. Oh, I, I love his arrangements so much. I, I meant to ask you, the, the, the piano on, on Life on Mars and, and, and on Ziggy and, and beyond, is that the same, I think it's Beckstein, that, um, that Paul McCartney used on Hey Jude and, and I think Nilsson used yeah. on Without You, that's the same as the Trident piano? Wow, that's, that's a... It is, yeah. I, I like oh, a documentary. The, yeah, if only it, it was still around in its original form. I heard the story, it's secondhand, I don't know if it's true, but I've heard it from several people connected with Trident that uh, eventually they decided it had to be restrung. Oh. So it was being it was being carried out of the studio. Now to get out of the studio, up to it was basement level, so you had to climb upstairs. And the way I heard it was that uh, one of the movers dropped it, and oh, the soundboard cracked. Oh. And uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm actually doubled over right now as you're telling me this. Just like yeah. in oh my god, yeah, 
Now that that was an amazing piano. Every as you say, Elton Queen, Supertramp, uh, Beatles, uh, on and on. Carly Simon, Harry Nielsen. Wow, I wonder where it is today. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the the thing is, interesting enough, I I did an interview the other day with Rick Wakeman, who played it, and he said that uh, no one. It was a rental piano. It wasn't owned by Trident. They rented it from somewhere else. Uh, and all of the f files, uh, I think he said there was a fire, and all of the files were, were burned. So no one knows the number on that piano. So there are like three or four people at the moment that are saying they own that piano. And no one can prove if they're who's right and who's wrong because no one knows the the number of the piano wow i think i think that's the plot of the next indiana jones movie that's really <laughs> wow yeah oh, that is fascinating oh my gosh i mean just all the sounds you're able to get in that that trident room i mean and and of course you know drums being you know kind of your 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 hallmark your trademark sound which i is one of my favorite sounds of that record and it's funny to me that woody woodmansey was not a fan of his drum sound on those sessions, which still cracks me up. No, no. And look, I, I, I look back on it now, and I, I know exactly what he means. But it's, it's, it comes down to what would work on that music at that time. And uh, my, my feeling at that time, it worked perfectly. If if the drum sound was different, if the if the drum sound was more of what he was after, which I know exactly what he was after, I I, no, I don't think the rest of it would have fitted together quite as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was it was it it, it served the track per perfectly. I it's still funny to me. And what did he say? He sounded like um, cornflakes. Cornflakes packets. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I gave him when we started Ziggy. <laughs> Instead of a drum kit, just all laid I, out. Yeah, I, I when we were going to, going to start doing it, the uh, the roadie that brought in his drum kit decided to set it up. I said, "Okay, hold on, put it all away again." And I sent uh, my assistant engineer out to buy as many different sized packets of cornflakes that he could find, <laughs> and come back. And we set up a whole drum kit with cymbals and everything. Everything was exactly right. Except it, for the drums, it was all cornflakes packets. <laughs> did he? Did he? Did he get a kick out of that? Oh yes. <laughs> oh yeah. What was the? the, the... Yeah, we, I wish I wish I'd got a picture of it. Yeah. But we didn't have. <laughs> we we didn't have phones that you could take pictures with back then. Was there a, a good sense of camaraderie with with the guys in the band at, at that time in the, around the Ziggy oh, era? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, 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 we were a team, and we had we we worked hard, but it was a lot of fun doing it all. Absolutely. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. A little later when you worked with, with David again on, on Aladdin Sane, that was really uh, his first album made when he was a bona fide superstar, having just come back from America. What were those yep. sessions like? Had he changed at all? Had the dynamic with the group changed at all? Because I know that was the last one that he made with, with the Spiders from Mars. Yeah. Uh, yes, there was a slight change. More, I think, he just gained confidence than anything because of the success. Uh, we started it off in New York and that that just in general was slightly different. It wasn't a situation that any of us were used to, especially for me because I always engineer my own productions. Only the for the sessions in New York, I wasn't allowed to do that because RCA Studios, where we were working, were heavily, really heavy union. And because of the union, I wasn't allowed to touch anything. So I had to sit at the end of the mixing console uh, just as a regular producer, not as the engineer producer. And I found that a lot more, uh, a lot harder. And uh, so the, the, the New York sessions were slightly strange for me. But then once we got back to Trident and we got back working on it again and, and completing it, it was uh, easy. And then pinups in... In France, what were those sessions like? They sound very, it, it sounds fascinating. They were strange, most definitely. Uh, let's face it, David had fired the spiders, and then suddenly, Ron, Rono was still part of it all. Rono knew what was going on when the, the firing took place. He knew before the other guys did that they were going to be canned. Uh, but what happened was, uh, David had to ask Trevor Boulder to come back 
because the original bass player suddenly pulled out of the project. So that was very weird. Bringing back someone that you just fired, bringing them back in at the last minute, of course that's going to be strange. Then with the new drummer, Ainsley, who, great drummer, I'd worked with him uh, in the past, great drummer. It was just different. And it there was very much... I, my wife was, uh, my wife at the time was pregnant with twins and she was due to give birth whilst I was over there. We took a day's break and I took a, a flight back to England for the birth and then flew back to, to continue work. Uh, so that, that was very, it, it was strange. There are a lot of things going on. David was already, I think, he wanted to move on to something completely different. And so, yeah, that, that, it, not my favorite album. I, mean, I, I think of all the albums that, that you you've worked on with David, either as an engineer or co-producer, and then there's so many. What is it about Ziggy that you think just just gives it this longevity and gives it this 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 sense that really makes it seem to stick out for most people? What do you think that is? Well, first, first and foremost, the, the thing originally is it the album, the track Starman, and the performance on top of the pops over here changed so much in people in young people's minds they suddenly felt that they they uh they could be different and it was okay so and that motivated so many musicians to i can do that i can be a musician i i think very much like the beatles in the 60s that suddenly it was everyone wanted to form a band and believed that they could become as big as the beatles uh, I think much the same way in the seventies with with David, and it started. It all started with with Ziggy and with Starman. Uh, and I think, for me personally, I think Ziggy holds together as an album much better than any of the others. Although there are tracks on the other albums that I prefer to some of the tracks on Ziggy. I know that's that's such a, a boring question, but you but you have a favorite that you worked on with him. <sighs> A favorite? No, uh, I, I. I would say there are there are two very specific ones, and it, both of them come down to piano. And one is Life on Mars with Rick Wakeman, and the other one is Aladdin Sane with Mike Garson. Incredible piano parts. I just, I, I still yeah, that really, absolutely, yeah, and 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 so completely different. Yeah, and that's that's part of David. What I was saying earlier about David putting together a team that would put across what he wanted to put across. Rick Waitman could never have done what Garson did on that album, and I don't know that Garson would have done what uh, Rick Waitman did on the Hunky Dory album. Yeah, I, I love Rick Waitman's kind of baroque style flourishes, and I love Mike Garson's like almost like cracked Weimar Republic cabaret style twisted yeah. piano sounds. I mean, that's just totally unique and totally him and totally special. And and you're right. They're both brilliant in their own unique ways. Yes. Do you have a, a sort of snapshot in your mind that kind of sums up your whole experience with David? Is there, is there a, a moment or a memory that, that comes to mind that always makes you smile, always makes you laugh? It makes me laugh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, this must have been when we were working on Aladdin Sane. And 
all of the fan mail had started to come in and someone from from David's management office must have brought along uh, a whole bunch of fan mail for David to go through and he picked out one and said here Mick this is this is for you and he started to read it and he said, dear Mick I love you I want to and starts to go through all of these lurid things that this person wanted to do to Mick Ronson <laughs> And as, as, as David is reading it to, to Rono, Rono is getting more, oh, yeah, oh, I like that, oh, wow. <laughs> and then David says, love Michael. <laughs> Rono's jaw just dropped. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.